Kurdistan in Swahili is dedicated to all you beautiful people around the world. We say... Jumbo! Well, hello and greetings to the Global Mission Podcast. My name is Richard Lewis, your host, as we discuss the issues of worldwide missions and the task of the Great Commission. Well, today I have a very special guest for this podcast, and that is my eldest daughter, Becky. Becky Marietta. We're going to talk about a couple of things. We're going to talk about her growing up in Kenya, but... uh, main reason we want to talk is about uh, this new book that you have. So you're on the air, Beck. How are you doing today? I'm good, Pops. How are you? I'm good. All right, Beck. Well, let's uh, start off by just talking about uh, where you are currently. Which, uh, tell us about your family. All right. Um, I am married to Casey. Um, we've been married, it'll be 31 years in August. Um, he's a builder has his own construction company, Marietta Construction, and I have two children, Molly Martin, who um, she got married, was it almost two years in June now? Um, She's going to be a doctor come May. um, Medical doctor. Medical doctor, yep. And then my son, Colin, who is 23, um, he's still kind of figuring out his path right now. I am an adjunct professor of English at John Brown University in Salem Springs. Uh, I've been teaching there. This is my 13th year there. Okay. And what do you teach? Are you teaching English? Okay. Good. And you live in the great state of Oklahoma. I do. Which is, you know, we, your mom and I live in Arkansas, but we're (laughs) probably not five miles from the Oklahoma line, so we're pretty close. And uh, so. Well, Beck, you are um, one of those people that I like to talk about that grew up on the field. You grew up in Kenya. And let's see, how old were you again when we moved to Kenya? Was it about five years old? Or five something? or six, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, you were, for the most part, grew up in Kenya until you were, what, 17, 18 years of age? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I graduated in California, so we left. Yeah. I think we left almost the end of my sophomore year okay. in high school. Yeah. So I finished uh, junior and senior year yeah. in Kenya. Then I got to go back and watch my RVA class graduate. Yeah. So you attended Rift Valley Academy. Do you, uh, what, uh, see, what grade did you start at RVA? Sixth grade. Sixth grade. So, yeah. you, so mom taught you until then at home. Yeah. And so what was that like? Um. Not great. Mom has many, 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 many uh, talents, but she would be the first to say teaching is not one of those. And homeschooling then wasn't the same as it is now. Obviously, we didn't have any internet. We didn't have any support. We had the ACE, Accelerated Learning Paces. Mm -hmm. RVA, Rafael Academy, uh, there in Kijabi, Kenya. Uh, Did you like that? I'm sure at the beginning you did. In fact, I... I know you did at the beginning <laughs> because we went through some trauma uh, when you got homesick early. But overall, was it a good experience? Absolutely, yeah. My first probably month there was very rough. 
um, because I'd never been away from home and um, it was just a completely different world. I didn't have the warmest storm parents. Mm. Um, there were some great ones and then there are some that weren't as great and I think these two, they had other skills, um, but they weren't very uh, maternal and paternal. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. so, you know, um, I, I just, I, and I just had no, I had no concept of what it was like to not be around mommy and daddy and yeah. Sarah. And uh, so at first I was very homesick, but then once I kind of got in the groove, I made some great friends. Um, I got to the point where I couldn't wait to come home for vacation because it was nice to have that break and to have mom feed me delicious food. But I would be anxious to get back to school because I'd get really bored. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it turned out to be an excellent experience. Yeah. And, of course, uh, your sister, Sarah, she followed, what, a year or two after you did or something like that? She started when she was in, I the think, fourth. fourth grade. Yeah. So I would have been ninth. Yeah. So okay. it was several years, three years after me. Okay. All right. Good. Well, can you think of one of the greatest experiences of, li uh, of living in Kenya? Of living in Kenya or yeah. Rift? Well, either one. Give us the riff. RVA. Okay. Some of the greatest things about living in RVA, like I said, were the, the friends. Um, I've never experienced making friends like I did um, at RVA. They were my sisters. Um, I saw them first thing in the morning. Saw them right before I went to bed. Looking back on it now, I think a lot of my favorite things about growing up at RVA, but also just growing up in Kenya, was the freedom I had. Um, part of that it was just the time period. I just, I really enjoyed not having too much supervision. And that's not a bad reflection on RBA. They were, you know, we had to be in the dorm at a certain time and we had certain rules. We sometimes broke those rules. Mm -hmm. Like we weren't supposed to go off campus, but there was a dupa down, a little shop down the, the hill that served really good food. We're supposed to get permission to go off campus, but we didn't always. Just to run down there and get an egg on toast and some, some Coca-Cola. Um, I remember going out into the forest up to what we called the waterfall. So there were things we did we weren't really supposed to, but we were never in danger. Like I look back on it now and I think, oh my word, you know, I would never have let my kids do that, but we wouldn't know the difference. And then I was talking to mom about that the other day. I mean, when we lived in Eldoret, there was that train track above mm -hmm. the house. Mm -hmm. I remember just leaving the compound of our house and just walking along that railroad track I felt like miles. I'm sure it wasn't, but by myself or with Chris Moore um, into the forest and just playing all day long in the forest by ourselves. Ma you guys had no idea where we were. <laughs> you, you know, if something happened, yeah. you wouldn't even know where to begin to look for us. Yeah. But it, we were never frightened. Mm -hmm. And I just think, thinking, looking back on it now, Obviously, we live in a more dangerous world. Yeah. There was just so much freedom to yeah. just explore and adventure. and. So overall, you would say you had a pretty positive experience living in Kenya. You don't feel like you were deprived in any way? No. Yeah. yeah. So. I, I loved growing up in Kenya. Again, I didn't have, I didn't know any different. Sure. But comparing that to what I know now, I mean, it was, it was a magical it was a magical childhood, sure, you know. Sure. You didn't realize how cool it was to be out there with spider monkeys mm -hmm. until you're here going, wow, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't ever see any spider monkeys. <laughs> so, I mean, 
yeah, there was a great sense of adventure. And I think, you know, the Kenyan people are so loving and so kind and, and generous. And I think that added to the whole safety thing. Like, mm -hmm. I never felt threatened. I never felt like, you know, if I needed help, I knew anybody that I stopped would, would, would help me. Well, the reason I like to talk about these things is because, you know, there are a lot of different people that are listening to this podcast. Some are thinking about going maybe to the mission field, and they have questions about raising their kids. And, uh, but um, just about everyone I've talked to so far uh, has a very positive uh, uh, approach to raising their children and family uh, overseas. Well, you came back to uh, the United States. Of course, you, you graduated uh, in the U.S., and then we went back to Kenya, and you remained back here in uh, Arkansas and uh, attended John Brown University. And uh, uh, and so kind of pick up the story from there. What? Uh, how long were you at JBU? You met your husband. You got married. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I went back with you all so I could watch my class graduate. So I got to spend that summer in Kenya, and then I came back to JBU. Um, all of our family was in Arkansas. Your parents mm -hmm. were in Prairie Grove. M Mom's parents were in Springdale, aunts and uncles. So I think the thinking was, even though you guys would be far away, there would be some family here. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I was used to living kind of independently. Again, I think that was one of those positive things mm -hmm. that um, I didn't I didn't struggle very much with with, you know, being around other people. And you um, didn't really have, um, you know, your sister had a little bit of, um, I don't know, reverse culture shock. She had a hard time adjusting to the U.S., but you didn't have as much, did you? I did. I just manifested it differently. Okay. Um, Sarah, when she was at RBA, she was still so young, and then we left while she was still so young. That's true. I was older, you know, mm -hmm. I went when we were young, and then I sort of grew up at RBA. Mm -hmm. So I had I had reached some, some of those independent milestones. Right. And when we lived in California, I did get a part-time job. Mm -hmm. I, I did struggle finding friends. Mm -hmm. um, I, had, I had a couple, most of my friends were younger, which mm -hmm. was a little bit weird because I just couldn't really connect with a lot of the kids. And, and they were just so different than me. Yeah. You know, the things that they cared about, sports and cheerleading and things. I just had no, I never understood football. I never <laughs> understood why people cared about that sport. I still don't understand why yeah, you, you yeah. care about it so much. If they had had a rugby team, I would have been all in. You know, when I was in Kenya, I played field hockey. Yeah, then sure. I moved to California and people were like, I mean, we've got ice hockey. So it's like, yeah, well, that's not the same at all. <laughs> but I do enjoy watching that mm -hmm. a little bit more. So I didn't. I made a couple of really good friends because, again, I got into sort of this nerdy clique. It, most of my friends were in choir, so mm. I got into a choir group, and that's where my friends were. But mm. I, I didn't have that same closeness mm. that, that I that I had at, at RBA. Okay. So I struggled, but I think I just, I think I handled it differently than Sarah. Yeah. And part of it, I think, is because I had already sort of gone into past puberty by the time I. Sure, that makes sense. I left, yeah. whereas she went into puberty mm -hmm. 
during that kind of difficult period. Well, you started at JBU, but you didn't finish because... Because I got my MRS. <laughs> I met Casey, which mom says that's the best, what, $7,000 you guys ever spent was getting Casey as a, a son-in-law. So, yeah, I met Casey. To be honest, like most of my students that I have now, many of them have no idea why they're in college. Yeah. They're just going because they're supposed to, and that was me. Sure. You know, my, my undergraduate plans at the beginning were psychology, mm -hmm. so I got my first two years of psychology, then... After I met Casey and decided I don't want to be in college anymore, I wanted to get married and I have babies and be a housewife. Okay. And um, so that's what I did. We got married. We moved to Wilmington for a year. Then we moved back here where Casey was. We moved to North Carolina. Yes, only to North Carolina. And then we moved back here and Casey was an elementary teacher for six or seven years, taught first and second grade. And I had Molly. And then a few years later, I had Colin and... Those were honestly, I think, looking back on my life so far, the best days of my life. Mm -hmm. I just loved being a mommy, mm -hmm. loved being a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. Only we, were, we weren't rich. We had to learn a lot of... <laughs> Casey had to work every weekend to kind of supplement our income. Yeah. But we both made that decision that this was important enough for mm -hmm. us that, that we would sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And um, I wouldn't... I wouldn't trade it. Those were definitely the salad days yeah. of my life. Well, let's, let's fast forward a little bit. So uh, the kids are getting grown, and you say, well, I'm going to go back to school. Yeah, when my son uh, started kindergarten, I decided, okay. okay, now it's time for me to go back to school. I arranged it so that I could still drop them off in the morning and pick them up at the end of the day. They didn't, mm -hmm. My goal was they didn't have to ride the bus. Mm -hmm. So I designed my... my um, schooling around that schedule. I ended up going to NSU in Tahlequah, which is about 45 minutes from my house, um, for financial reasons. GB yeah. is pretty expensive. Sure. Yeah. So um, I went back to school when I was, I guess, 27, 28, 29, 32 mm -hmm. is when I went back to finish my bachelor's degree. Okay. Um, and by that point, I had figured out that I am not suited for psychology because I don't have a whole lot of empathy. <laughs> I do better with dead people, so English was was my thing. So I had enough credits in psychology that, that could be my minor. Uh -huh. um, but I ended up getting an English degree, and while I was there, my advisor, who has since passed on, um, told me, hey, um, you know, you need to just go ahead and keep going and get your master's degree. And he said, if you'll teach English 1 and 2 for us here at NSU, we'll pay for your tuition. Hmm. And that sent me into crisis mode because I hate public speaking. Hate it with a passion. I had put speech off until the last possible minute um, in my undergraduate. And just, you know, doing five minutes of talking sent me into terror. I thought that there's no way I can teach. There's no way I can get up in front of students every day and lecture. Mm -hmm. But I felt like God was just saying, you know what? You need to trust me. And I remember actually having the Abraham moment where I said, Lord, I am slow of tongue and slow of speech. <laughs> you got the wrong girl. And I just remember just all of this, this feeling of prompting. And so I said, okay, we'll do it. Uh, okay. And the first day I had class, I opened up my mouth and it was just like complete peace. Mm -hmm. And I have discovered since it is the same way I can step into any classroom, start teaching, no nerves, 
The minute they asked me to do a public speaking event, I am a mess. <laughs> when I had to do a missions moment for you guys at church, yeah. I was a mess. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I've been telling people, if you want me to do some public speaking, let me teach. Yeah, yeah. well, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's a good way of doing it. So you graduated with your BA in English and then your master's. Was it also in English? Also or in English. Okay. Um, it was... Actually, the first and only creative thesis, master's thesis, that was accepted at NSU. Hmm. They had tried before, and they never thought anybody was good enough and said, nope, nope, nope. Huh. But my advisor, or well, my mentor, and a, a good friend of mine, Jeff Conine, um, he, he said, I think you can do it. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. And so we went to the thesis director and he said, you can try it, but I'll tell you right now, if it doesn't work, you're going to have to go back and write a conventional thesis. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot of pressure, but I wrote the first 150 pages of the novel. And then I, I think it was a 30 page research paper about the process mm -hmm. of writing. Wow. And he said, after <laughs> you're sitting there nervously while he's going through it. Uh -huh. And he looked up at me and shook my hand and he said, this is, this is fantastic. Wonderful. Love it. Good. So, so that was a distinction I was allowed to yeah. have. So you kind of did a, your, um, if we could say it this way, you, your kind of your internship as a teacher when you were at NSU. Right. Uh, and um, so later on, you uh, made application for John Brown University? I had a friend that I saw at a coffee shop, and she um, had been an adjunct at JBU, and she said, I'm going to, she said, I just got a, a job teaching high school, but she said, you should go talk to JBU because mm -hmm. they're always looking for adjuncts. Mm -hmm. And I went in and I talked to, Gary Gwynn was the department chair at the time, and he was like, sure, we'd love to have you. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, it was me and another guy who had been teaching there for quite a while, but then when he moved, I became like their head adjunct, mm -hmm. and I've been there ever since. <laughs> How long have you been there now? Uh, 13 years. 13 years. 13 okay. years. Well, let's get into the writing now. Okay. Uh, before we begin talking about uh, your book, uh, let's talk a little bit about how did you get started in writing? Was it just uh, through blogging, or how did you actually get your foot into the creek, as it were, for writing? I think I've always been a dabbler. Hmm. Um, I've always, I've been a, a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at any, oh, yeah. any point, that's what I did. Sarah would follow me around wanting me to play games, and I would disappear up a little quad tree and spend <laughs> the day reading. I yeah. just, that's what I did. I love mm -hmm. to read. And so stories, is all, stories have always had some sort of magic for me. And so I would dabble writing my own little stories. I would tell myself stories. Um, I'm real bad about talking to myself, so I know I look like a crazy person, but that started when I was really young, and a lot of times I was just telling myself stories. Um, and then I think I, I started a blog, because this was you know before Facebook and any kind of social media, that was our sort of our social media, and I started it to exercise my writing muscles. Um, and because I, I had this pull towards writing something that people would read rather than just writing stories for myself or telling stories to my kids, mm -hmm. I, wanted some, I, I wanted some public um, conversations. And blogging was great for that because at that point especially, you would develop quite a little blogging 
crowd. Sure. Um, and so there are a lot of blogs I followed. There are a lot of blogs that that followed me. And I was I, I was looking back at my old blog the other day, and I gotta say it was some pretty good writing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was surprising. Don't say so yourself. I was kind of impressed on some of the things that I wrote. That I thought, hmm. wow. I, so I think I honed my sense of humor and my observational eye. Hmm. And the thing about blogging is, you know, there's going to be someone hopefully looking at it. So you're careful with what you write. Right. You know, whereas like if you're journaling, you don't expect anybody to read it. So right. you don't really care about your sentences and you don't care about, you know, your grammar. But when you're doing a blog, you right. feel that pressure of judgment to, mm -hmm. to kind of. And so I learned how to sort of self-edit doing mm -hmm. that. And I started writing some some sort of creative essays. And the first one I sold, I think, was in 2003. It was to the Christian Science Monitor. Hmm. Um, and it was a um, it was a, a short article about running in oh. Kenya. Okay. Because at the time I was an avid runner. Mm -hmm. And I was talking of in the short essay, I was talking about getting through my treadmill workouts by pretending in my mind's eye that I was running through Milamani, which was our neighborhood, so I could visualize that red hill and down, and here's where our house is, and then the ditch, and there's the, the flame trees. And <laughs> so I would imagine that I was, I was running, and the kids on the sides yelling out, you know, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and then I talked about, so it must have been before that, it must have been 2001. <laughs> I talked about what it was like for us then going back to Kenya. It had been, I mean, I hadn't been there since I was a teenager, and that was, what, October of 2001, because yeah. mm -hmm. we didn't know if we'd be able to go because of September 11th. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I wrote about what that feeling was like to actually get to run this thing that had been in my imagination for mm -hmm. so many. So, so so that was the first thing I got paid $75 for. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had our <laughs> three things, that uh, articles... Poetry that had been published? I had, I had probably three creative essays like that published in, in various publications. Um, I've had three or four short stories. Um, that's when I started really getting into my fictions for some pretty decent literary magazines, mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, probably what I'm most proud of. And then I've had a couple poems. I'm, I don't call myself a poet. <laughs> I'm a dabbler. But I did have a couple poems mm -hmm. that resonated. So... But my, my big thing has always been wanting to write a book. Yeah. I just, I've always wanted to, to finish a story because I've started so many. And, and, you know, the natural choice would have been what I did my thesis on. Mm -hmm. But by that point, I kind of moved away from it. Um, I'm picking it back up, but I've completely changed it. So that'll be another. Okay, well, let's talk about your book. By the way, um, it is, uh, we're going to air this on the date that it is launched for publication April 5th, which yes. is also your birthday. My birthday! And uh, so uh, let's talk about uh, this book that uh, is being launched today. It's called White River Red. White River Red, a novel. A novel. Yes, and okay. the reason that's important is because it is based on a true story, okay. but it is fictional. Okay, well, uh, yes. What is White River? For people that are not living in Northwest Arkansas, why White River and then why White River Red? So the White River is just a river in Arkansas, in Northwest Arkansas. Mm -hmm. um, has really good fishing. 
trout fishing. <laughs> For any fishermen out there, that's where my husband likes to go fly fish, is on the White River. And Red, White River Red, it, it's based on the story of a woman named Forestina Bradley Campbell. Forestina. Forestina, beautiful name. Yeah. I just, I love that. Forestina Magdalena. Oh. Bradley Campbell. Boy, her parents were... Very Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least she was in my book. <laughs> so, um, and, and she was, had red hair. Mm -hmm. Apple red is what I call it. Mm -hmm. So, she lived on the White River. She had a bar on the White River. Mm -hmm. And so she was called White River Red. Mm -hmm. um, and the story is, kids could call her that, but she didn't like it when grown-ups did. She found it a little bit offensive. Um, uh... In my book, she doesn't care for it, but she doesn't get as mad as I think she probably really would have. But it, Forestina is a hard hard name for people to say. Yeah. So for the little ones, she was perfectly fine them calling her Red. Mm -hmm. And so, so basically, um, I got interested in the story back when my grandpas were both alive. So that was many years ago. Um, I would go over to, to visit with Pa, um, who's my mom's dad. And he would always, he, he was great, he was a great storyteller. And he would tell me these stories about Arkansas back in the day. And he would one day told me the story about this rough old gal named White River Red who stomped around town in men's clothing, swore to beat the band, uh, cussed the sheriff out, but she was real gentle with the kids. She was very ladylike when she was around the women. Um, my nanny told, my, my mom's mom told me um, that it was a well-known fact that if someone was down on their luck, uh, Red would find out about it and she would go into the utility office or the doctor's office and reach in her pocket and pull out a big old wad of cash because she didn't believe in banks mm -hmm. and she would pay their bills and say, don't tell them where this money came from. Mm -hmm. Or she would find out someone was hungry and she would leave groceries on their, on their porch. So she was this this sort of enigma of a woman that, so, so I went and I asked your dad, Chief, <laughs> I said, Grandpa, what do you know about White River Red? And he, <laughs> he got this funny look on his face and he smiled and he said, White River Red. <laughs> and Grandma Jean whipped around and she gave him a look. And he just <laughs> shut his mouth. And he would not tell me anything about what I read. My guess has always been because that's the Baptist side of the family. We're not allowed to tell racy stories. <laughs> Where, you know, yeah, Manny yeah, and Paul, yeah. they, could, they could tell a racy story or yeah, two. Right. So that's when I first was introduced to her and thought, wow, what an interesting person. Then a few years down the road, um, Shiloh Museum in Springdale. Um, they had uh, an ad, or a, I don't remember the, I don't remember how I heard about it. It's this little tiny museum right in the middle of Springdale, and they had just acquired White River Red's Wheel of Chance, which I'll explain in a minute. But they had a talk where they invited people who had stories about White River Red to come share their story um, with with the public. So I thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to to hear these stories. So I took a notebook because at that point. I had started having this idea of, you know, what a, what an interesting person. I want to find out more. And I went in there, and I was by far the youngest person. I was the only person without white hair. <laughs> um, and I just spent a delightful couple of hours listening to these elderly people 
swap stories about White River Run. And one sweet old lady looked at me and said, now, honey, how did you hear about White River Red? And I said, well, my grandpa. But as I left, I thought, how sad that once these dear old people are gone, White River Red story sort of just passes out of existence. That it's just going to be scraps of stories that I people like me have heard. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? <laughs> How could you tell this story in a broader sense so that her story would be known than more than just a few people in Springdale, Arkansas? Mm-hmm. So I tried to start doing some research, and the only research I could find was a local historian named Philip Steele who would write these great sort of histories of Arkansas. He would, he would connect famous people with their Arkansas roots, like the, the James brothers, Frank mm-hmm. and Jesse James. Mm-hmm. Their Arkansas backgrounds. <laughs> so he wrote this seven-page booklet called so, White River Red. Just seven pages. Seven pages long because she had died. He wrote it in 1979, and she died in 1973. Hmm. So she had died since. And again, this is well before the Internet. You know, this is microfiche if you're going to find anything. Sure. Um, and, and a lot of people who knew her had died. So he had to try to dig up what he could based on research, and it was pretty skimpy. Mm-hmm. And what fascinated me was, so he self-published this book, and he sold it, and that, and they, they, there was Friends of White River Red group. The proceeds and the funding that they gathered together was to put a tombstone on her grave because she had died destitute mm-hmm. and had not had a proper tombstone mm-hmm. on, on her grave. And so they raised enough money to put this tombstone, and you've seen it. Yeah, we went out there was probably a couple of months ago, and we were out at the cemetery, and, and you showed me White River Red's um, headstone. That was pretty fascinating. And it's interesting, isn't it? Very because it has a carousel on it, and a Ferris wheel, and a trapeze artist, and a rat. Which is what you do not expect in a tombstone. <laughs> so, And she's buried in the same cemetery as my nanny and pa, mm-hmm. um, and other... Uh, stamps, Relatives. other other stamps, kin. So, um, so I really just, I just had this pull towards her, and I thought, okay, what I'm good at is fiction. If I take the things I know about her life, but I fill in the blanks, you know, why did she dress as a man? According to Philip Steele, she was a beauty when she was young. You know, why did these certain things happen in her life? I can fill that in in fiction. I can give her character. I can give her motivation. I can make this an actual story with an arc Mm -hmm. and a theme Mm -hmm. and not just a reporting of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So that's what I set about to do. Mm -hmm. And so basically, in a nutshell, um, she ran away from home when she was 15 years old in 1906 Mm -hmm. and joined the circus and was a trapeze artist for a while, walked a tightrope, and then something terrible happened. And she had to leave the circus. And at that point, she started working at a carnival, traveling carnivals. And she had a rat game where she had three live rats, a black one, a brown one, and a gray one. And from what I can understand, I've tried and tried to make this work in my mind. She would have this big table with these circles with colors and numbers. And you would bet which rat would go into which hole and what number. So it was a gambling. It was sort of like rat roulette, if you will. (laughs) So her hands were all scarred up from rat bites. And that's how a lot of people remembered her. The the, the people in real life who remember, they remembered her her rat games. 
because she'd stand out there and holler, rat, rat, come play with my rats. <laughs> so, so I gave her sort of this, so she, she worked at the carnival for a while. Um, and then she um, got involved with a, a bar on the White River. So for me, doing the addition, and again, with fiction, you can make stuff up, so it's, sure. it's great. You can, again, make it fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I figured some of this had to be during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. So having an illegal moonshine business and a dance hall hidden in the White River so that, you know, they wouldn't get caught. So, and this was her life. And along the way, she had a couple husbands. Um, and then she also had another um, man enter her life. And so um, she, had, she had some tragedy. She had some, some pretty rough characters in her life. But what I loved about her, just based on the, again, the generosity in her real self, mm-hmm. and what I really tried to highlight in her character in my fiction, was she always had this sense of hope hmm. that as bad as things got, you know, th- th- there was good in people mm-hmm. and that she still had a responsibility to be good, as good as she could be. Mm-hmm. She wasn't perfect. Yeah. You know, she was a, she was a rough old gal, yeah, right. <laughs> but she had this, this, this strong sense of, of right and wrong mm-hmm. and how to treat people. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of my 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 narrative theme, mm-hmm. and and I was able to bring in you know themes of friendship between women, yeah. supporting each other, um, and um, from so. the time that you started with the concept, your first draft, I've been watching you. This is this was not a, this was not an easy process. No. How long did it take from the let, let's say when you first started writing, and I'm I'm sure you. If you're like most writers, there were times when you just got a block and you put it down for weeks and months at a time. So how long do you think it, the, the, the timeline was? I was trying to figure that out the other day. I think I started writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started doing serious research about six or seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, I had settled on the fact that one day I would like to write this book. I had done the Shiloh thing. Mm-hmm. I found Philip Steele's research. But about, I would say, six or seven years ago, I got serious about it. And then I started doing a lot of research on the American circus. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're writing historical fiction that goes from 1906 to 1973, yeah. you have to be very careful to not accidentally put things in there that would not have existed right, sure. um, or have them say or do things that they would not have done or said. Right. <laughs> um, and so when you're when you're covering this time period, and I do jump back and forth um, in time, but I, I, I probably spent probably a good year just doing serious research, trying to get all of this um, set up so that I understood, you know, there is a reason why there's a cliche about people saying, I'm going to up and run away and join the circus. Mm -hmm. During that time, um, in the early 1900s, kids ran away Mm -hmm. and joined the circus. It's just, and you know, 15 in 1906 wasn't the same as 15 in 2021. (laughs) You were practically an adult, you know, Casey's grandpa um, ran away when he was 14, left school, got a job. And mm-hmm. So, you know. So back to your writing. When So you did a lot of research. I did research, and then I started writing. Um, and I probably, I, I pecked away at it for about a year. And then I thought, okay, this is ridiculous. You just got to get it finished. So I set a very strict schedule for myself. 
um, and I got the first very rough draft done in about a summer. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, I, I had some beta readers um, read it, give me some, some advice. I went through uh, revising it. I started querying. It wasn't working very well. Um, and I realized one of my problems was, was my point of view. I had some technical issues that I needed to work through. So I let it sit for probably four months mm -hmm. in a drawer so that when I pulled it out again, I could really revision. I tell my students, revision literally means looking at things with new eyes, with mm -hmm. new vision. So to be able to give myself that space and look at it again, like then I could see all of the problems. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to fix that narrative structure. And then when I started sending out again, I started getting more requests for manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess it was May of last year, I got two contract offers. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one um, well, I picked the one that I felt like I, I, I meshed with the best, yeah. Touchpoint Press. Mm -hmm. And they have been just a joy to work with. Okay. They're traditional uh, independent publishing um, and um, they're, uh, they, they're, they're just awesome. Okay. You know, they've taken care. I, I had a student ask me the other day in a creative writing class, I, I guessed, and they asked me, why did you want to go to the self-publishing group? And I told them, you know, there's nothing. I, for me, it was because it took me so long to get to this process, I wanted to see the whole thing through. Mm -hmm. which included all the pain of rejection mm -hmm. and all the hours it spent researching what publisher might be a good fit. And so I, I just, I was in no hurry, mm -hmm. I guess is, was the answer. And I'm not a very good marketer. Yeah. And so when you have a, a traditional publisher, they, I mean, I still have to market. Now, Self-publishing is fine if you've got a network, and yes. if you've got some way of, getting the word out absolutely and, uh, so and that's a lot harder with, <laughs> with fiction okay. if you're not a natural salesperson which i'm not so um <coughs> you know i you mentioned to me one time that um you used a phrase saying i'm not a christian writer mm -hmm. i'm a writer that is a christian right so now, this is not a. This is not a. <laughs> this is not uh, a devotional. This is not a Christian book. It's no. a novel. Right. Uh, but and there are a couple swear words in it because well, my girl sweared. Yeah, sure. Well, swore. Uh, yeah. Well, that was bad English. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she swore, but I told that class. I said she never uses any of the big swears. Yeah. Because okay. I can't use any of the big <laughs> swears in public like that. So. They're the little swears, yeah. <laughs> but I had to be true to the character. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, I, uh, of course, being your dad, I wish you all the success in the world. I'm looking. Not. I have not yet read it. Uh, your mom has, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, even though uh, we, uh, you generously gave us a hard copy, I'm going to wait until it comes out <laughs> in uh, paperback, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, which is. I guess the day that I'm, we're making this, uh, mm -hmm. April the 5th, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm going to read it while I go to Kenya. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, can, was, can I add one more thing or we sure, made over no, time? No, it's fine. About the Christian writer, yeah. <clears throat> I would like to give a plug for one of my favorite um, 
writers who's a Christian, but not a Christian writer, but a lot of people are familiar with is Madeline Langle, mm -hmm. who wrote the Wrinkle in Time series. Mm -hmm. She wrote this great book called Walking on Water, where she talks about the writing process, and she talks about this very idea of being a Christian who's not a writer who is a Christian, not a Christian writer. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was such a, a relief because I do want to give God glory with my work, mm -hmm. with my teaching. And that's been a struggle for me because I am not what I would consider a traditional Christian writer. Like, I'm not Jeanette Oaks. Yeah, right. You know, I falter not at all. She mm -hmm. absolutely has a voice and an audience. But that is not what I read and that is not what I write. So to try to turn myself into, you know, sort of a Christian romance or a Christian-themed novelist, mm -hmm. it just, it, 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 it's not who I am. And I struggled with that for a long time. And then I thought, you know, God made me with the voice. He made me. Mm -hmm. He gave me with the, he made me with the imagination he made me. And so I would pray, Lord, I don't know where we're going with this book. How can I get bringing glory? And there is one scene where I am actually, it just came naturally. It wasn't me forcing it, mm -hmm. but it really was one of those moments where I felt like God opened up um, this path where White River Red was going through some difficult times. And she remembered a, um, they owned a campground mm -hmm. and she remembered a revival pastor showing yeah. up at their campground. And just by the way he treated people, she was drawn to him mm -hmm. and she went to one of his, his sermons mm -hmm. And then I was able to sort of present that sermon, not a straight out preaching, but, you know, a, a scene of it. Mm -hmm. um, Zephaniah 317, which is my favorite verse, and I give it to my students too, about um, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save, um, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so I, I was able to share that verse and sort of preach yeah. <laughs> through that, that. And so she, and I had this sort of faith that she carried with her even during her 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 time so um so i just i wanted to yeah. th that's sort of what i think of when i think of being a writer who is a yeah. christian yeah. That, that there are avenues where your christianity can come through my book will never be put in the christian fiction section yeah, well but you know it, it's it's good to remember the c.s lewis uh, narnia right uh, uh, token right. and so they were Christians, but right. they didn't always write Christian books. And right. so I think that's a great distinction. Well, it's a good way to sneak sneak into non-Christian sure. lives. Because they're never going to go to the Christian fiction yeah. section. Yeah. But they might pick up a book that's... You know, talking about a, ha, has, a <laughs> has a revival pastor. Yeah, right. So, so um, tell us again uh, how they can... Uh, access uh, your your book okay um so april 5th um it will be available on amazon um kindle and paperback trade paperback um and then you can also order the hardback or the kindle book nook, not the kindle the barnes and noble book nook mm -hmm. they can order that on on uh, barnes and noble okay. online and the title once again is white river red a novel by becky marietta Okay, great. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this, Beck, and uh, I, uh, I I look forward to reading it. And I'm look. I, I hope that uh, our audience uh, uh, they'll take that uh, opportunity to 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 buy it and read it as well. I so. appreciate it. If you do and you do like it, please leave me good reviews. <laughs> if you don't like it, don't say anything. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. Well, again, we want to thank you for 
listening to this podcast, and I trust you enjoyed this interview with Becky and uh, her new uh, book that's coming out today. So until next time, may God richly bless you. Jumbo Buana means hello, mister. Swahili ni raisi. It's no tongue twister. No problem. Hakuna matata. Welcome friend, it's Karibu Rafiki. Let's have some chai with lots of iliki. No problem. Hakuna matata.